Dining halls, the gym, the library. Everywhere on campus, Elon students can be seen with their necks craned downwards. Eyes locked on social media apps such as Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. The tapping and scrolling can seem incessant. A 2020 study by Experian Simmons found that 98% of college students use social media on a daily basis. It has become a staple of college culture. It is this growing phenomenon that is having some professors on Elon's campus, like communication design professor Ahmed Abdullah Al-Fadam, pray for the end of its domination. I was praying this morning and I was talking to a friend that please, please may someone shut down the internet. It's killing us. This is ENN Radio, a weekly podcast from Elon News Network bringing you the story behind the headlines. I'm Anna Terry. This week on ENN Radio, we are talking about how the ever-growing presence of social media is affecting professors on Elon's campus and hearing from Elon political science professor Thomas Kerr as he breaks down the term gerrymandering. Today, I'm talking to ENN reporter Hope Valenti. Thank you so much for joining me, Hope. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm tired. Oh, yeah. No, mid midweek. It's It kind of comes with Wednesday. <laughs> it's a given. <laughs> but this week in The Pendulum, you wrote a story, and it was a lovely story, might I add, Thank on you. how professors have been navigating the increasing prevalence of social media. And you talked to Elon communications design professor Admin Abdullah Al-Fadam, who talked to you about how bias on social media has been affecting his classes. Can you explain more about what he shared with you regarding this topic? Basically, he explained that in class, students will use social media to not really fact-checked, but instead kind of verify previous convictions. This is helping building convictions that uh, it even sometimes related to misinformation or disinformation, wrong information being uh, uh, posted online, and people will start to believe that it's the truth, simply because so many people, so many posts are repeating them again and again. So compared to something your professor said once in class, how can this be true when a hundred people are saying the opposite? Fadam believes that bias on social media contributes greatly to the polarization seen within the world today. And in your story, Fadam said that he has observed productivity and academic integrity decline in his classes as social media has gained more influence throughout the past decade. Do you know why this is? Well, he said that it's mainly because students will just go on social media during class and use it as a distraction. Or they will simply copy and paste questions into Google and just look stuff up and they don't really research for themselves anymore. So they're not learning as much as they used to. They don't have to think as much. He said that it's just become too easy for them to get information. So they're just kind of not really getting that level of intelligence that they used to. They're not uh, uh, putting enough effort into uh, looking for information. It's already there in front of them, ready to be used. 
With boundless amounts of information available at one's fingertips, social media can be an amazing tool. But the widespread relay of false or biased news via these social media channels also makes it a great threat. A 2016 study by the Pew Research Center found that 23% of Americans admit to spreading misinformation on social media, whether intentional or not. And Fadam used the popular analogy of social media acting as a double-edged sword. Can you share what characteristics of social media he personally believes contribute to this comparison? Well, he believes that you can use it for good, you can use it for bad. So he's saying basically you can use it to broaden your knowledge or to just not build upon it at all. Instead, just verify what you previously thought was true. So you can use it to further your research, to learn more about the world, to look at other perspectives, or you can use it just to look at your own. We try and we uh, are trying hard as uh, 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 tutors to use this sort for good. He says that it's either good or bad and that it can be a distraction. It can be just, yeah, like it can be a distraction. It can kind of lead to confusion. It can have false news spreading all over and you just have no idea because students don't even fact check anymore. Mm -hmm. So they're not looking to see if it's true or not. They're just believing it. Mm-hmm. And you talked to journalism professor Susan Ladd, who believes learning proper use of networking tools is essential for those within the industry today. What is her reasoning behind this belief? Basically, she just explained that a majority of your audience is going to be online now. It's all going to be through social media. So you have to know how to communicate with them in a way that they will want to read the news, in a way that they will understand the news. As a former journalist, she actually saw how this benefited her in her career. And it became a part of her career. And she said that when she left her career as a journalist, she ended up having a Twitter account, a Facebook account. And she used all of these different things on social media in order to keep up with the politicians, with the movers and shakers. That's what she said. (laughs) When the movers and shakers and just stay up to date and find leads and find stories. So it's really just it's kind of essential to a career in communications. Mm -hmm. And those are all the questions I have for you. Thank you for joining me and for giving me some of your time today. Thank you. And as technology has allowed for the rise of social media, it has also allowed for the growth and adaptation of media analytics. Today, media analytics offers valuable information. When one visits a website, analytics can track insights such as web traffic, user demographics, and data patterns. And while these insights are beneficial for companies involved in e-commerce, they are also highly valuable in the world of politics. With the help of analytics, state legislators are able to utilize data and redraw distribution maps in a way that benefits their political party. This process is known as gerrymandering. To learn more about this complex term, executive director Kira O'Connor spoke with Elon political science professor Thomas Kerr. This interview has been edited for length and clarity. So I wanted to ask you first off, Mm -hmm. for people who maybe are not as familiar with gerrymandering as a concept, how would you explain it to someone who really doesn't have a bunch of background on it? Okay, so 
it is a process where legislatures, because congressional district mapping is left to the state legislatures. So it is a political process where one party tries to redraw districting maps so that it would benefit their own party. So you look at demographics mostly. Um, you can look at voting behavior too, things of that nature, and draw maps that would maximize the number of seats that you're going to win. Okay. Uh, with the rise of analytics like we just talked about, uh, you know, there's people out there that make a living to know exactly what street to stop the district at. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, it's become a science of, in essence, making the playing field <laughs> slanted one way. So with North Carolina, we are the poster child of gerrymandering in the United States. Mm. Um, so some of the maps that are drawn up, and these maps are drawn every 10 years. They're, they're drawn up in the legislative session after the last census. So we had the 2020 census, 2021, we redraw the maps. In North Carolina, some of the proposed maps... <laughs> even though our voting electorate is roughly split. You know, we're a purple state. We're 50-50. But some of the maps would make it so that it would be an 11-3 split. Wow. So, obviously, that is not representative of the public's political sentiment. So, right now, North Carolina is going through root processes, you know, it seems like every time we redraw the congressional maps in North Carolina, there's lawsuits because it's so gerrymandered. I guess the the biggest question that, from the information that you just gave me that comes to my mind yeah. is how did it get to this point of so gerrymandered that, you know, there's lawsuits every time the districts are redone and we're having this issue of it was done by an elected body. Yeah. Um, which I just think is an odd thing to think about, that an elected body still did it that gerrymandered, but I guess it's not that surprising. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, so how did it get to this point that it is this dire in North Carolina? Uh, in increments, you know, the... It, it's a science. It is, you know, how analytics have invaded sports, analytics have invaded politics. So the, the Republicans, because that's who it's been, it's been a Republican-led legislature for a very long time in North Carolina. They just keep pushing the envelope. Let's, let's try this, and let's see if it makes it through the courts. Um, so that's where it's at, you know, just push the envelope, okay, we got away with this, we're going to try this. Um, the last time they really tried to do a major gerrymandering, it was struck down, or they had to temper it, because um, ethnicity was a part of their calculation, which is illegal. Okay. You cannot do it based upon ethnicity. 
You can do it upon party affiliation. So that's where that voting data is becoming so important. So now they can draw lines based upon voting data, which in theory is completely legal, because it's not based on ethnicity, even though there is a strong correlation between ethnicity and party affiliation. The other question that I keep having with this is, as you said, it's happening in increments. And people may not be noticing that it's happening in increments until it's almost too late. But do you think it's too late for people to get involved and to do something about this process? So every time a congressional map is drawn, it goes up for public debate. So there is a direct mechanism that people can get involved to express their either support or displeasure with the proposed maps. Um, they don't have to listen to the public, though. So uh, um, there was quite some outrage when the current map was announced and during that public hearing, but it didn't change anything. There's not a whole lot that the individual voter can do. Um, awareness is one thing. Making, you know, voting based upon if there's most politicians don't make that part of the party platform. But you know, if there is a politician that says you know, gerrymandering is an issue, I'm going to tackle that, then vote for that person. Um, most people don't pay attention to down-ballot candidates, pay attention to justices, to, you know, when you're electing court officials, that's, again, really the battleground in politics right now. So pay attention to those. Which is so odd to think about, <laughs> but that's the battleground now. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. I'm going to have to get The court, I mean, that hurts me personally because, again, it's probably being naive, but I still would like to think that the courts are independent and nonpartisan. That's not the truth. <laughs> That's not reality. But I would like for that to be the truth. <laughs> um... The courts seem pretty hesitant to get involved, especially after uh, the Supreme Court Voting Rights Act repeal. They're taking the cue from the Supreme Court that it's not the court's job to monitor what an elected body does when it's fulfilling its duty of electoral mapping. And why do you think that is, that, you know... Has it always been that way, that it's not the court's job to get involved in that elected body process? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. I mean, uh, they do get involved when there's things that are, you know, strictly unconstitutional. You know, according to the 14th Amendment, you can't discriminate based upon ethnicity, sex, gender, all of that. So, again, at one point, the North Carolina map was struck down because it did take ethnicity mm -hmm. So that's where the courts feel comfortable getting involved, but when it's based purely on politics, then they they don't seem to be ready to get that involved in the democratic process. 
That's it for this week's episode of ENN Radio. Subscribe to ENN Radio on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and follow us on social media at Elon News Network. For the latest news, visit our website, elonnewsnetwork.com.